your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Bowers awaits the shotgun snap, sends the tight end in motion. They roll right. Bowers throws pass. It's not going to Eli Sullivan knocks the football away, and the Huskers have a goal line stand taking over the one. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Thank you. Welcome to our Tuesday edition of Sports Highlight. So glad you've dialed us up tonight. Spend a little bit of time with us. We're going to get into a lot of different topics throughout this hour. We're going to return with the Big Ten Blitz. Took a week off last week because last Tuesday, the head football coach, Scott Frost, had a Zoom press conference. So we dove headfirst into all of that content last week. So we took a week away from the Blitz, but we're back into it tonight. And some of the heavy hitters... We'll make appearances tonight. We'll check out what's going on at Michigan. Angelique Shingelis will join us a little bit later on in the hour. We'll also hear from Matt Andrews, who's the sideline reporter for the Ohio State Buckeyes. We'll see what's happening in their camp. Their thoughts about the upcoming year. It should be another excellent football team in Columbus, highlighted by Justin Fields, who is on the top or near the top or at the top of about everybody's Heisman list after the year that he put together last season. So we'll hear from Matt. We'll hear from our old buddy Corey Geiger from Penn State. See what's going on with the Nittany Lions. A lot of these preseason magazines, and yes, there are some of those magazines that have hit the newsstands. I think Penn State's got a serious chance of being a playoff team this year. Um, Obviously, the Buckeyes stand in their way. They will get that key game at Beaver Stadium. So they'll have a shot of beating the Buckeyes at home, and that might be enough to get them into uh, into a playoff situation, so we'll uh, we'll get a, a feel from Corey about what's going on with Penn State football, and we'll hear from um, Angelique and Matt as well as we check out the three powers from the East Division of the Big Ten. We started our blitz earlier in the month, and again, we did take last Tuesday out because we wanted to talk to the head football coach. All right, uh, some recruiting news today, and this was good news for Nebraska football. It was running back Gabe Irvin from Buford, Georgia, which is southeast of Atlanta. Oh, 75, 80 miles southeast of Atlanta is where Buford is. Committed to Nebraska, and this was a good get. He's a three-star running back, 6'1", 190, and was recruited by Sean Becton, who that's his territory. And Coach Becton has done a tremendous job at the state of Georgia for Nebraska since coming up here from UCF three years ago. And and obviously running backs coach Ryan Held was involved in this because it was one of his position guys. Irvin had a live kind of deal to, to pick what school he was going to go to. And the other hats around him – uh, before he grabbed the Husker in, Arizona State, Duke, Michigan State, even had a Georgia hat on there. So this is a good get for Nebraska. And you, you start looking at the backs that this staff has been able to bring in the last couple of years. The current crop with Sevion Morrison and Scott out of uh, Florida. Those two guys backing up a Diedrich Mills from a year ago. Um, Ramir Johnson, who was able to keep a, a hold of his red shirt last year. 
looking back, you kind of wonder maybe Nebraska should have let Ramir play more games than he did, but they were able to save that red shirt for Johnson. So that room is starting to get stockpiled a little bit, Ben. But the, the announcement today that Irvin picked Nebraska, you could you could sense the excitement coming just uh, on the Twitterverse from the Husker coaches. Uh, they were pretty pumped up to see Irvin pick Nebraska. And again, kudos to, to Sean Becton and, and Ryan Held. This looks like another nice addition to this Nebraska running backs room. Yeah, I think that was uh, surprising in a sense that uh, we weren't necessarily expecting a, a commit today. And then, you know, watching that uh, that ceremony that he put out today where he had, you know, the five hats on the table with some pretty good company, um, you know, you just – you for whatever reason, feeling. But then you heard the way that he talked about Nebraska and what the coaches told him and, and, and the uh, relationship that uh, Irvin had with his high school head coach and what, you know, what the bug that the high school coach put in his ear about how special he could be at a place like Nebraska. A big selling point for him was the fan support. Um, I, he, obviously, with the video today, you could tell that he's very close to his family and uh, the relationships that Ryan held, Scott Frost, and these coach, and and he also singled out Coach Becton too, Greg, mm-hmm. of being able to establish a relationship with these young men to where they feel confident about not just their football abilities, but their abilities to grow as a as a as a person as well. So um, this is a good get for Nebraska, and on top of that, you stay in the South, you go get another kid out of the state of Georgia. Uh, it's an important part of the country that you need to be in, in in terms of recruiting. And I think for the most part, um, this was a pretty solid day and couldn't have got much better, at least on the recruiting front. And, and I like that. I like the shape of that room right now. I really like the two backs that are arriving this year. I mentioned Ramir Johnson. We still don't know about the health of Ronald Tompkins. I think if he gets to be healthy, that's going to be a really good back. But Irvin, I, I just I just think – that's another area of this football team. We've talked a lot about offensive line. Uh, you, in quarterback, you just you start I, – I, I'm seeing depth now that to me looks like a, you have the kind of depth that you can start to pinpoint moving down the road. I'm not trying to build up hope for this fall. Don't get me wrong. I, don't, I think this fall is a little premature. But down the road where this could be – you're building enough depth where you can be competitive to go and realistically have a shot to win the, the Big Ten West. Yeah, and I think that obviously the, the the analogy I've been using is you know you're you're bringing a a, a Camry to a to a race of dragsters. You know, it's like you, <laughs> Coach Frost needs needs more weapons. You know, he needs to show up more equipped on Saturday to to run what he wants to run instead of having to to, to try and finagle your way with a with a freshman true freshman quarterback with wide receiver packages where he's throwing passes and. Uh, you're, you're having to do all these different things. You know, you would think a skill position at Nebraska would be one of the easier positions to recruit to. Now, if it was defensive line or linebacker or, I mean, even tight end or fullback or, you know, one of those other positions that isn't necessarily highlighted in an offense like this, you would think that with, with what Nebraska wants to do offensively, quarterback, running back, wide receiver should be the easiest um, places to recruit in terms of getting recruits' attention and having a an offense that could cater around those skill positions. And now the frustrating part to Husker fans is we haven't yet seen 
um, what what an, a Scott Frost offense could look like with all three of those positions clicking at once. The closest we got to it was the first year when you had Divina Zigbo come out of nowhere, you had Stanley Morgan, you had Adrian Martinez, and we all felt great about how the way that season ended. Uh, I think that's that's kind of where that that's kind of where I'm going with this is you can see what this offense can do when you have those three parts that kind of blends together. And, and you know, I, I go back to what P.J. Fleck said, Greg, after the, the Minnesota game, the first time those two teams met at Memorial Stadium, Scott Frost's first win. And you, and you heard what P.J. Fleck said about Coach Frost and how hard that offense is to stop when they have all the parts clicking in the right spots. And I think that's – I keep going back to that time and time again when we talk about recruiting, when we talk about J.D. Spielman leaving, when we talk about uh, all these things happening to Nebraska's offense – that that are setting them back we're getting further and further away from that offense that we saw that day at memorial stadium where they could have scored 70 on the gophers i i think that's that that's what we all want to see and and getting these types of players in here should get nebraska closer to that point 24 offers for gabe irvin and a lot of them were power five schools so impressive get today for the oscars their 10th member of the 2021 class so we turn the story now from a future Husker running back to a past Husker running back. Austin had it for us in the ticker, and that's the missing persons report filed on Maurice Washington. Lincoln police uh, said he's been was reported missing on June 19th. Uh, they're in search of Maurice Washington. Can't seem to find him. Um, I, I, I'm worried because I... Maurice is uh, an interesting guy. He, I think, has demons that he fights a lot. Uh, I, I, I think you and I both we liked Maurice Washington. It was kind of a, he was a fun guy to be around a little bit. I'm, I'm nervous. This is a, this is a scary story, and I hope this doesn't end poorly. Uh, but this is this is a bizarre thing that popped up about midday today that he's gone missing. Well, Greg, you go all the way back to. Scott Frost's decision to suspend him and not keep him around and how much of a firestorm uh, that was met with in the media uh, nationally and, you know, the comparisons that they drew, uh, again, national writers, not local writers, to the the Tom Osborne and Lawrence Phillips situation and just how how obscure and how obscene that be- that, that national story became. And you, you would read the headlines – and and they were all misleading headlines of what he actually did. He got painted as a as an absolute villain. Look, what he did was horribly wrong. I'm not trying to stick up for what he did, but I'm saying he probably got more of a bad rap than than he deserved for for his situation, especially the way the courts handled it. I mean, that was utterly ridiculous. The way that California tried to make an example out of him because of what his name uh, meant to so many people on the football field. Uh, with with a, a new law implemented in that state, it, it, it almost seemed like, okay, here's a young man that we can we can really uh, paint a picture of, of what we want to do with this law moving forward. And, you know, when you got somebody in the limelight like this, this is a good time to, to kind of flex our muscles. That's, that's almost what it seemed like. And the thing kept dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. We had a court date just to delay to another court date, just to delay to another court date, just to delay to another court date. Month after month after month, we kept getting these delays. And what we said during that entire time that this was happening was, let's hope that this isn't a situation uh, that turns his life upside down, meaning 
obviously he wasn't the best teammate while he was here. He wasn't completely bought in. He, he was selfish at times, and that led to his dismissal of the team. Well, the worry then was, okay, how does this young man who's clearly still growing up in maturity level handle himself when he's not under a structured environment like the University of Nebraska where he's required to go to class, he's required to be at team meetings, he's required to eat breakfast with his teammates, he's required to wear certain clothing. He's under supervision a lot, and if he's not you know, taking his own responsibility, he's being punished for it, what happens when you take him away from that situation and, and you let him essentially roam free? This was the worry. Now, we there's still a lot left in this chapter, we hope. We, I don't know how this is going to end, but this is what we all feared when Maurice Washington was let go from the team was this isn't the last newsworthy item we've heard from this young man and it's not going to be where is he going to go play football next it's something like we heard today and and as you said let's hope that uh, this story has a happy ending or at least not a tragic one and, and I mean, it's hard to believe otherwise right now because of, of the trajectory we've seen his path go. Let's let's hope he can he can turn it around. First, let's hope he's okay. You know, let's yeah. hope, let's hope the young man's you know doing okay and and, and you know the, his well being is taken care of and you know he he's he's caring for himself um, or, or or he's found I suppose at the very least. But beyond that, assuming he's healthy, assuming he's all right. He's got to, let's hope he can find a way to get this thing straightened out and he can get his life back together because, you know, Greg, you go back to when he committed to Nebraska. The coaching staff knew that this was a young man that was going to require a little more supervision than some. He had a long path to even get to Lincoln. He busted his tail in the classroom to get eligible. He's been bouncing around from place to place growing up. And, you know, you, you had a feeling that Nebraska could be the place to help him get his life in order. Instead, it, it seemed to be the opposite. Let's just hope that, uh, you know, this story turns out on the on the positive side. On the legal side, he ended up pleading no contest to those charges. He did do a, a short amount of, of jail time, but was released on March 20th. So he's been out of the correctional facility for several months now. But again, the uh, Nebraska State Patrol has reported him missing, has been missing since Friday. So we'll keep our ears and eyes open and keep you updated on Maurice Washington. The Big Ten Blitz. Michigan. And to talk about the Wolverines, Angelique Shingalas from the Detroit News. Angelique, great to have you with us. I hope you're happy, healthy, doing well up in, in Ann Arbor and Detroit. I am. Thank you. And like you, I'm hoping for football, praying. You know, we all want that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, you know, Michigan has been hit pretty hard by this virus. I know you're just starting to get some things opened up a little bit. Are, are, yeah, are student athletes back on campus? Are they doing any of the voluntary workouts yet? Yes, they are. They started coming back last week and, and went through the COVID testing. Not all of them, but some of the staff. And even shortly before last week, Harbaugh, a couple staff members and players who are local went through testing to kind of get ahead of it a little bit. And I think you probably saw re uh, reports last week. Ford Manuel, the Michigan Athletic Director, said of the... Oh, I think it was roughly 270 players and, and uh, from different sports, obviously not all football, and two had tested positive and were asymptomatic. But, um, you know, they they have a whole set of protocols like a lot of schools have, and players got back to it on Monday for voluntary workouts. And, uh, you know, I think they've had a pretty good turnout from what I understand. And still a lot of room here, you know, for, for answers and, and figuring out where they're going next. I think it was a big move yesterday when uh, the university president said that they were going to do their best to have 
a lot of in-person classes this fall, and, and I think that's a good time for football. So I think early July is when Michigan probably will have some kind of confirmation on what's next. Angelique, all these schools, for the most part, were robbed of their spring football because of the virus. In, in what ways did that hurt this Michigan team? Well, that's a great question. I mean, because there are a lot of there are a lot of question marks. I mean, you know, everyone wants to talk about the quarterback competi- competition, and that's certainly legitimate. But I think the bigger, the much bigger question for me is how do they replace four starters on the offensive line? All of them went in the NFL draft, including uh, first rounder Cesar Ruiz, the center who left with a, a year left. He was a junior. And so I think that's an enormous question mark. And, of course, the quarterback competition. Shea Patterson's gone. He was a starter for two years. Now it's it's Dylan McCaffrey and Joe Milton. And this spring was going to be so huge for them. And to really get a gauge on where this competition is going. And, you know, they haven't had that competition, like a lot of schools, as you said. And Michigan canceled, I think it was four days before spring ball was about to start. So they got absolutely nothing. And some schools got a few practices in, but Michigan got nothing. But both of those quarterbacks have been working. I mean, Dylan McCaffrey, talk about, yeah, I mean, this is like having a private coaching uh, clinic there. He's got his brother, Christian, his brother, Luke, who's in Nebraska, and, and his father, Dylan McCaffrey. And they're working out all the time. So that bodes well for Dylan. And Joe Milton's been working out in Florida and then came back to Michigan and has worked out a lot with uh former Michigan quarterback Devin Gardner. So, you know, they're both working hard, but you're right. Spring ball would have told us a lot about that competition. Right after we, we, we're finished with you, we're going to talk to the guys at Ohio State and Penn State. They both, everybody's got both those schools in the top ten. If Michigan's going to make a run at the East, it, they're going to have their work cut out. This is going to be a real challenge, isn't it, for them this fall? It is. I mean, when you look at that schedule, too, I mean, again, they got to go on the road. they got to go to East Lansing. they got to go to Ohio State. Uh, they have some big, big games at home, but that's just a tough task. And again, breaking in a new quarterback. And, and really, when you look at this, this is the first time Michigan's going to have a quarterback that, that was recruited to Michigan. It's not a transfer. No one's transferring in to take over. So that'll be a, that's going to be very big going forward to see where this team can go in the East Division. It's going to be a tall task when you're, when you're facing a team like Ohio State, certainly in Columbus, but with a, with a quarterback like Justin Fields. So, um, you know, I think, you know, we haven't even talked about the defense, but I think that they, you know, they lost some key guys on defense, but I think they feel really good about where they're going on that side. They're going to, you're going to see a lot of younger guys, and uh, they've got some guys back like Josh Ross, the linebacker from injury. So they feel pretty good about the defense, but it, it's, it, the East is so tough, as you know, so I, I don't know. It's hard to say where Michigan's going this year. Yeah. Angelique Shengelis from the Detroit News. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Penn State. And to tell us about the Nittany Lions, Corey Geiger, the Altoona Mayor, joins us now. And let's just start with what are the Lions doing their voluntary workouts? What's the latest on campus? Well, there's, they are. Uh, and Penn State is going through all of the protocol uh, phases of, of trying to open back up and get kids back on campus. Uh, the plan for now is they will have students on campus by late August. Um, and the president, Eric Barron, spoke earlier this week about uh, certainly there would not be uh, anywhere near full capacity at Beaver Stadium if there you know, are, are football games this fall. So uh, I think just like everywhere else, Greg, just waiting to see what the virus will be like come August and September. And, you know, is it going to be 10,000 fans in the stands, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, zero? I mean, it's... 
those, those questions, I think, for all, you know, a lot of, of schools across the country are still wide open. Corey, besides the virus, what have been some of the offseason headlines for Penn State football? You know what? It's, it's actually been pretty good here, pretty quiet. But one thing Penn State's done is they've made a lot of players available to the media uh, each week on Zoom calls. Um, so it's not like the players have just kind of – it's not like football discussion around, around here has just – Disappear. James Franklin's been available. A bunch of players and coaches have been available. There is <laughs> this. This is the interesting thing because there is real life with the virus and and all kinds of uh, potential issues. The, the Penn State football team is expected to be very, very, very good this year. Uh, a top ten team entering the season with legitimate college football playoff hopes. So this is a year. And again, this is just the way things are. Everybody's trying to balance the realities of. Uh, uh, what's going on in the country with moving on with their lives in other ways. If there's a football season, Penn State has a chance to be really, really, really good. So if I said some chance the season were uh, in jeopardy, it would come at a very costly time for this football program. When you look at this team, and there are a lot of strengths, and you, you're right, they're kind of one of those sexy picks of being a team that, if we play, has a chance to make the playoff. As you break them down, give me the positives and give me the things that are still to be determined about this team. Well, they might have the best defensive player in the country in linebacker Micah Parsons. He is just awesome. We've seen phenomenal linebackers here really for decades at Penn State. I've covered them for 15 years. We've seen Sean Lee, Paul Pazlovny, Dan Connor. Uh, Navarro Bowman. I mean, we've seen tremendous linebackers come through here. Uh, Micah Park Parsons was a first-team All-American last year. a true sophomore. You know, uh, linebackers generally aren't the number one pick in the draft, uh, but he he's good enough to be a number one pick in the draft kind of player. So, and and the defense should be really good. That's basically been Penn State's staple forever. They should be able to hold most teams to a reasonable amount of points. To keep in mind, they held Ohio State under 30 last year in Columbus. Uh, you know, so that was a, a, an outstanding effort there. So the defense should be good. The running backs should be very good. They're very deep. Journey Brown went for 200 yards in the Cotton Bowl last year. Noah Kane, uh, Devin Ford, they've got a lot of da- talent and depth there. And then they do have a returning quarterback in junior Sean Clifford, who got off to a really, really good start last year, then kind of got banged up a little bit and, and was not as effective later in the year. So they have a lot of things to be to really like. The big question mark is the receivers. Who, who's going to catch the ball? That's been an issue at Penn State State for the last few years. Um, they had KJ Hamler last year, and he it was it was him and basically a huge drop off to everybody else. So they've got to find legitimate quality guys that Sean Clifford can get the ball to, because the offensive line should be pretty decent. And that's been a problem at Penn State forever. So you have good running backs, a pretty decent offensive line, a very good, good defense, good special teams. So can they find receivers to catch the ball and make plays down the field in a new offensive system from uh, Kirk Sharaka, who's coming over from Minnesota? How, how big of an influence has the virus been in and around campus? I know some of the metro areas have probably been hit pretty hard, but how about in and around State College? Yeah, early on, early on, Center County, which is where Penn State is, had a large number of cases. They got that under control pretty well, and then all the kids left. And so, State College, Pennsylvania is a very uh, unusual town. Uh, it's, I, I want to say the population right now is about 20,000, give or take. Um, so when they get 100,000 people on campus for a football game, 
this tiny little, little town grows into a massive town. But it's not a it's not a big town. It's mostly people who are, are involved with Penn State University in a large degree. So here in central Pennsylvania, and I live in Blair County, which is a neighboring county, it's been great. We've had about 60 cases in Blair County. Center County has had more, but it's, it's we really, knock on wood, Greg, have not felt serious repercussions from the virus where we live. But the problem with that is this where I live, and I think a lot of places in this country that have not been hit hard, you get lulled into thinking, okay, this is not a big deal. Well, there are a lot of places in the country where this is a big deal. And if they open up a football stadium for games and you're bringing people from, I mean, Penn State draws from everywhere. Now they may be coming from areas that are have been hit much, much harder. And if you have 30,000 fans in that stadium, I'll guarantee you, you'll have a ton of people that are, that are going to be leaving those stadiums sick. And, and that is, or catching the virus. And that is really the big concern for me. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm trying to be a realist. You open up these football cathedrals around the country and, and, and we could have some big problems. Corey Geiger of the Altoona Mirror. Corey, great stuff. Appreciate it. Ohio State. Let's talk Buckeyes. Matt Andrews of the Ohio State Network joins us now. And Give me the lowdown of the Buckeyes. Are they doing the voluntary workouts? What's, what's the latest with the football team? Great, good to be with you. They are. They, uh, I don't know if you probably have been following along, but a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, they're all running together. The the voluntary workouts and, and uh, the quote-unquote Buckeye pledge that they asked all of the student-athletes to sign. Uh, and the great dis- discussion around the country was, well, is that binding document or not? Gene Smith says there's no legal anything involved. It's just to try to help make these student-athletes aware of when they head out on the weekends or whatever they're doing, they've kind of got a commitment to their teammates. And it all has to do with it being a voluntary workout situation. If you, if you don't sign it, you don't you don't necessarily have to do the voluntary stuff, but you're not going to lose your scholarship or anything of that. And, and so these individuals are back. We've not heard a lot since they returned. Of course, the day the football players returned, it was media galore over there to get pictures and all of the, the good pomp and circumstance, but nothing really it's kind of been hush-hush the last couple of weeks since. What are they What are they doing with the season ticket holders? I mean, Iowa came out yesterday and halted their season ticket push. What, what's the, what's been the procedure in, in Columbus? Yeah, that, that's been a hot topic. Um, I, I, I am able to purchase two through my brother's former varsity time here. Uh, he does not get his, so I buy his. So, so the process has been uh, that originally the money's due like at the end of February or March. Well, they pushed that back once this all started. And so the, I think the deadline was about a month ago that on the payment. And people wanted to know, will we get refunds if there's no ticket? If we don't get tickets, if there are no games, how will that work? I think 40-some thousand renewals, 48,000-ish roughly uh, for, for the season tickets. So the money's paid, uh, but nobody seems to know how they'll assign tickets, if they'll assign tickets, what the numbers will look like. And I really believe they've got all sorts of plans. And we've heard from the ticket office that they're, you know, they've got models on what they could or couldn't do. But everybody is just waiting, I think, for another, I'm guessing, Greg, another week or two to decide how, how this will look. And maybe they won't even decide that until the week before the games. I don't know. 
but we're supposed to select seats. Again, this was the year where every four years you have the right to reselect seats. This was going to be that year. I don't know where that is. So it's kind of still very much up in the air. It's like, like I think a lot of things really still are at this point pertaining to football. Matt, a year ago at this time we would have been talking about first-year head coach Ryan Day. It, it, it seemed like it was seamless, the, the transition from Urban to him. What did you learn about him over the last 12 months? Well, that's a great observation by you. And it really not only seemed that way, but it was. And I think those three games he had the start of the prior year helped him a lot, obviously. But but he took a, took a team. Let's not forget now, this team trailed for one half of football all year until the Clemson game. And and, and they happened to have their most sketchy half of football in the Big Ten title game. And despite winning by 13, we're going to drop them from one to two. That's for another day. Ryan Day is so it just it's it seems so effortless from him and he's kept the recruiting going which has really been impressive his demeanor uh, the way we talk to him after games now clearly he didn't he didn't lose a game till the end but but the way he was able to deal with the media it's a, it's a touch of urban but it's much more personable uh, it's been a, it's been a breath of fresh air and again not being negative towards coach Meyer who was obviously tremendous at what he did but but just kind of kind of a more youthful and, and more hands-on approach I got the sense on the sideline Greg that when good things were going on people, people really embraced him and wanted to be around him and even when things were tough they were right there with him as well and it was it was a lot of uh, a lot of fun to watch a lot of fun to be around but this is a guy I think who made a great mark in year one and he's got some big guns coming back here for year two. Two of the of the top five picks in the NFL draft were Buckeye defenders. How how do they replace Young and Okuda on that side of the ball? And, and just give me kind of a quick snapshot of what that defense may look like here in a few months. Well, I think that's the big question. Sean Wade's return. Uh, there are a lot of people that believe he'll be a top ten pick at cornerback. Uh, they've got a young secondary, but very talented. Uh, they're going to have pieces and guys that were were a part of that last year that they'll have to plug in. But with Kerry Combs back, guys seem to want to do anything, run through any wall for him. Of course, there's a couple of years down at Tennessee with the Titans to, to coordinate the defense with Halfway's department. Linebacker should be a strength. Pete Werner, tough Borman back. They lose Malik Harrison. And then how do you replace Chase Young? You don't. But but they, they get a little bit of a break. If you remember, Greg, at the end of last year, Jonathan Cooper's injury, he played in that one game, the Michigan game, but is able to redshirt, medical redshirt. So he'll be back on one end along with Zach Harrison on the other. They've got a lot of really young, raw talent on the line, but everybody expects Larry Johnson to, to be able to develop that rotation Probably not to the extent they had a D-line last year, but but it's going to be a strong suit, I think, again, for this team. He's done it time and time again. Matt Andrews of the Buckeye Network. Matt, we appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Greg. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top Ten Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Which are brought to you by Union Bank and Trust at Union Bank and Trust. All your banking needs are taken care of by real people who really care. Stop by and you'll see that you belong here. Union Bank and Trust member FDIC. Father's Day two days ago, so we thought we would go with the the best father-son combinations in sports. Now, I made sure that the... My list got pretty long. My, my preliminary list, I got really long, and so I decided to keep 
fathers and sons within the same sport. Now, maybe you guys went differently, but you have some great fathers that were in one sport and their son was in a different one. I opted to leave those off my list of ten. Yeah, I had uh, fathers, sons that participated in the same sport as well, and I tried to, to do some variety. Obviously, uh, that, that lent itself to uh, one or two of these pairs. Probably not if you're just going to do ten best, but I wanted to get at least at least as many different sports as I could. So uh, there is, uh, I do try to dabble in multiple different areas. Okay, so you did you did cross sports lines with your list. Yeah, I mean, it, as long as they were they participated in the same sport. Um, oh, okay. The, the father I, and the son. So I did like like uh, the Noahs, like what. Yannick and Joaquim. I, I did I left them off my list, even though Yannick was a great tennis star. Yeah, Joaquim same. was a great basketball player. So, Austin, how'd you attack this? I was ninety percent same sport. I only have I only have one that differs. So, okay, kept it kept it pretty in house. Very good. Well, Ben, you missed out last week, so we're going to let you lead us off tonight. Sure. Uh, this is one that uh, was one of the first ones that came to mind, believe it or not, and, and I'm not sure it cracks a lot of people's top ten, but. Um, I think just because of you know me being able to watch the son play for almost his entire career uh, and, and a, a lot of what could have been for him. I've got Cecil and Prince Fielder here in, in, uh, in the Major League Baseball. Of course, Prince Fielder signing that massive deal with the Rangers, but for, of course having to retire early with the neck injury. He's one of the fastest players ever uh, with, with the century marks and home runs and um, you know, was a premier power bat in the majors before his career was cut short. And I think most people probably think of the fielders with Cecil, who uh, had a great career in Major League Baseball and is known around uh, the bigs in, in the Detroit area and, you know, for his uh, career that he had. So I got Cecil and Prince Fielder here at number 10. Who did who did Prince sign his monster contract with? Was it Texas? Detroit. It was the Rangers. or. Was, or was it Detroit? He was Milwaukee, and they traded him to Texas. Yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah, yeah. he was – there was a couple years where he was top five player in the game, no doubt about it. But you're right, injuries really took their st- toll. All right, Austin. I line up with Ben. I got Prince oh. and Cecil here at number 10 as well. Prince was figuratively and literally one of the biggest stars of that late 2000s, early 2010s baseball. Just so much fun to, to watch him mash. And I kept uh, Felipe and Moises Alou and uh, – Vlad, Vlad Guerrero and Vlad Ito off my list, but I think the Vlads will end up passing the fielders after Vlad Ito gets a few more years of service time. Good call on that one. All right, I homered this one a little bit for my number 10. I'm going the McCaffreys. Ed was such a good player in the NFL, wide receiver, a couple of Super Bowl rings, and Christian, arguably the best back in the National Football League right now. And then, obviously, Luke is still at Nebraska. So the McCaffreys make my list. Christian has by far been the best of the bunch, but Ed was pretty darn good as a wide receiver for many years in the NFL. So I go with the McCaffreys and the 10. Yeah, glad you put that one on. That was a that was a tough cut for me, but Same. I do go NFL here, and this is the one that it, it might be a bit of a stretch and, and kind of a, with a similar vein as the as the fielders because of injuries. But I wanted to, I wanted an NFL on here, and the first one that I thought of is Kellen's Win, Winslow Jr. and Senior. Uh, Kellen's Win, Winslow Senior is maybe the best tight end to ever play yeah. Yeah. Uh, that position and. Kellen Winslow Jr., of course, had all kinds of shoulder injuries, and uh, he did make a Pro Bowl. Probably would have been a multi-year Pro Bowler had he been healthy, Uh, but he was a beast at Miami. He was a part of those 
those crazy Canes teams in the early 2000s, and obviously his father is known uh, as maybe one of the best tight ends to ever play. So uh, I've got the NFL here, uh, Kellen Winslow Jr. and Kellen Winslow Sr. From the gridiron to the hardwood, I go to the NBA. I have Rick Rick Barry and his kids, specifically Brent Barry. So Rick was yep. an NBA Finals MVP, eight-time All-Star, and Hall of Famer. Brent Barry disproved that white men can't jump, the first white guy to win an NBA slam dunk contest. <laughs> also won two NBA championships with the Spurs. And two other Barry progeny played in the NBA, John and Drew. None of them were nearly as successful as the father, but getting four people from the same family into the NBA, I think that's a pretty impressive feat worthy of recognition. What was Rick Barry most known for? That was his underhand free throws, wasn't it? There you go. Underhand free throw shooter. Everybody made fun of him, but, man, he was (laughs) deadly. I think he shot well over 90% and and, and has openly said, more guys should try it. The guys who struggle yeah. at the free throw line would be much better if they did it underhanded, but they don't want to take the criticism from people yeah. by doing the underhand shot. All right, my number nine, I, I stay in the National Football League, and I'm going the Matthews family. Papa was a longtime lineman in the league. He played five or six years, but then it was Clay Jr. who was set a 19-season NFL career, uh, terrific defensive player, and then obviously Clay the third has just been a tear on the football field as of late. Uh, the multiple defensive player of the year, won Super Bowl titles, uh, already with the Green Bay Packers. So I'm going the Matthews clan in the National Football League. All right, very good. This one uh, for my number eight gets an assist to the Internet. Uh, but, again, I wanted some diversity on here, and, and what better way to diversify your list than go to, I guess you can call it the hardwood, the slick hardwood, the lanes, the bowling here. I've got Dick and Pete Weber on here nice. uh, father-son yeah. duo that have combined for 67 pba uh championships pba event championships uh they each had at least 30 i think one had 37 and one had 30 so i mean they're, they're usually when you talk about bowling uh and i don't know a ton about bowling other than you try and roll it and knock the pins down uh <laughs> the, 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 those are some of the the pioneer names that you think of when you think of professional bowling and dick and pete weber so i've got them at number eight pete had that all-time tv moment who do you think you are are. i am am. oh yeah oh goodness absolutely iconic all right my next father-son duo is in nascar i've got lee and richard petty at my number eight spot so lee won the nascar series championship three times and was named to three halls of fame richard was named to those same three halls but he won the series seven times and oh you know no big deal a nascar record 200 races along the way very good. That's a lot of races. That is a Multiple. lot of races. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number eight, uh, I think Austin or somebody mentioned it. I'm, I've got the Alus here, Felipe and Moises Alou. Felipe started, broke into the league in 1958 with the San Francisco Giants. 17-year career, made the all-star team three different times, led the NL in hits twice. And then Moises, 17-year career, mostly with Montreal, uh, but career, 303 hitter, that is really impressive. to hit over 300 in your career, over 2,100 hits, 332 home runs. And he got to play for his dad. It was his manager for a long time. Uh, so Moises and Felipe Alou make my list at number eight. Awesome. All right, on to number seven here. Here's my first hockey pair. I got Gordy and Mark Howe here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everybody familiar with Gordy Howe is a 23-time All-Star, but... 
Mark Howe wasn't terrible in his own right, Hall of Famer in 2011. And anytime you follow up a career like literally a Mount Rushmore figure, uh, the amount of pressure on, it's it's impossible to meet and surpass those standards. But uh, Mark Howe hung in there and put together a pretty solid career himself. And, you know, I, I think anytime you're you're an all kind all time great icon and you have somebody trying to to follow your footsteps that can be uh easier said than done and the first you know father son duo that comes to mind is michael jordan right his kids were good enough to play in college at least one of them was and i think he played at ucf but obviously there's only one michael jordan and i think that was kind of a similar situation for uh, for mark howard or his father gordy no doubt about that. So number seven is where I put my one pairing of father and son that didn't play at the same sport. I've got Calvin and Grant Hill at number yeah, seven. Good one. So Calvin Hill was the first Cowboys running back to get over 1,000 yards in a season. Four-time Pro Bowler also won a Super Bowl. Grant Hill, absolute monster for those early 90s Duke teams. Injuries did hold him back somewhat in the NBA, but still a seven-time All-Star and shouts to the internet on this one as well. He joined Wilt Chamberlain as the only two players in NBA history to lead their team in points, rebounds, and assists per game three times. So he didn't live up to the next MJ hype that he got coming out of college, but he was still a darn good player. Sure was. Very good player. And now, not a bad basketball commentator. Does a really good job Mm -hmm. with that. All right, my number seven, I'm back to baseball, the Boone family. It started with Ray. He's uh, He was the, 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 the guy who got it started in the late 40s, 13-year career, two-time All-Star, won a World Series. Then came Bob, terrific catcher, uh, won seven gold gloves, uh, four All-Star games, won a World Series, and then sons Brett and Aaron, with one of those still managing in the major leagues with the New York Yankees. Uh, both had shining moments in their careers respectively as well. So I've got the Boone clan at number seven for me. Great. All right. On to number six. And my number six here, I've got Bobby and Barry Bonds. Obviously, Barry Bonds, known for the power in, in San Francisco and, of course, his, his pre-juicing days in Pittsburgh. Uh, but uh, obviously a little bit of a black eye with him with, with the doping and, um, you know, the home run records. And is he a Hall of Famer? Is he not a Hall of Famer? We all know he's a Hall of Famer, but – you're opening Pandora's box when we have this conversation. And obviously his father, Bobby Bonds, uh, three-time All-Star. He's on the San Francisco Giants Wall of Fame as well. And I did not know this, but he was the second person in Major League Baseball history with 300 home runs and 300 stolen bases. So that's pretty elite company for the father of Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonds as well. So uh, I obviously have more uh, baseball father-son duos, but due to... Uh, the the stain that is the steroids era and what you can prove, I had to knock them down a peg. I stick on the diamond for my number six, not the Bonds, as though I've got the Ripkins up here at number six. So Cal Sr. was with the Orioles for 37 years as a catcher, and then he was a manager. Cal Jr., obviously the Iron Man, set the all-time consecutive games played streak over a 21-year career, along with many of the other accolades he received. And even Billy Ripken played 12 years with four teams. And Cal, Cal Sr. actually got to manage both of those boys in Baltimore. They formed a double play combination up the middle for him in the late 80s early 90s so that's pretty cool and the Ripkins are my number six okay my number six I'm going racing I got the Earnhardts here Dale Sr. and Dale Jr. Um, Dale Sr. was one of our trivia I think it's a famous face-off answer a few weeks ago 
uh, just a dominant driver, the intimidator. He wore that black number three car. He would bump guys when bumping was part of racing back in those days. And then Dale Jr. really had a, a, a very nice career. A lot of people thought that he just was riding on his dad's coattails but ended up having a pretty good career himself before some injuries took him out of racing. So I've got the Earnhardts here at number six. All right, great. On to the top five here. And, Greg, I've got uh, another set of racers here. This was Austin's eight. I've got Lee and Richard Petty here. Obviously, Richard, the seven-time All-Star or NASCAR champ. The king. has been in uh, the news lately with uh, the Bubba Wallace situation at Talladega. But, yeah, one of the, the – probably a member, if not not probably, is uh, one of the Mount Rushmore members of – of NASCAR racing here, and obviously Lee, Lee Petty, no slouch in his own right. So I've got the, the Petties at my number five. I kick off my top five by going back to the ice. I got Bobby and Brett Hole. So Bobby had a 23-season career, won a Stanley Cup, a couple Hart trophies, a few Art Ross trophies, and then his son Brett became the NHL's third all-time leading scorer and tied with some guy named Wayne Gretzky for the most playoff game-winning goals in a career. And they were actually the first father-son duo elected to the NHL Hall of Fame. Pretty good accolades are my number five. I'm right there with you. I've got the holes at number five as well, and you kind of laid out their careers, both really solid careers. And as I kind of studied the hockey lineage, and I know Ben had the howls earlier, I kind of put the holes just a little bit above them, and so that's why I've got them at my number five. I put the holes a little bit ahead of the howls too, um, so they are just a little bit higher than you guys at my number four. So I've got two hockey duos on here. And that's three in a row for Bobby and Brett Hole. And Austin kind of rattled off the statistics there. The first father-son duo uh, in the NHL Hall of Fame. So good stuff there. My number four has already been mentioned. This is where I've got the Bonzes. I had to knock him down a peg or two because of all of Barry's issues. But in terms of pure athletic talent, there might not be a better duo up here. And then add in what Barry did on top of that with how he one-upped his dad, and then obviously have to factor the steroids in a little bit. Still really impressive, Barry, before the steroids. So I think they did enough uh, even before Barry had his issues to be at number four on my list. I've got – this is – my number four is my highest-rated basketball tandem, and that's the Currys. Dell had a tremendous – I think people forget Dell Curry was like a 17-year veteran of the NBA, and now with Seth – and Seth is, and Steph both have did, done really well. Obviously, Steph Curry's one of the preemptive shooters in all of the history of ba- the sport of basketball. So the two sons following their dad, it was a scoring machine in his own right. So I've got the Currys here for me at number four. I think the most impressive thing that uh, that we, we tend to forget about Steph Curry was, you know, when he was drafted, he was 160 pounds soaking wet. From Davidson, he was a really high draft pick, but he had all those foot issues, and, and that yeah. seemed to be a chronic thing for him that no one was sure he was going to be able to overcome ever. Could he get those feet healthy? And, and I think those ankles that were just a huge problem for him. And yeah, I think he got that figured out and some. All right, on to the top three here, and this is where I've got Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. Uh, obviously, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, in a lot of the the social media. Uh, timelines in the last week with the uh, MLB Network premiere that they did on him. Uh, 
honorary member of the Orman Rowboats, the season that he put together in SNBL. But we all grew up grew up wanting to be Ken Griffey Jr., that million-dollar smile, the backwards hat, the sweet lefty swing, the, the dynamite catches in center field where he's crashing into the wall with his feet up on the wall was on those great Mariners teams. And obviously, uh, Ken Griffey Sr. is a multi-year all-star and uh, a member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, too. So I've got Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Sr. at number three. My American League SNBL MVP is also up at number three for me, and I gained so much more respect for Ken Griffey Jr. more than I thought I could after that MLB Network stuff when he uh, told his story about why he was <laughs> never going to go play for the Yankees. So that's my MVP. I'm not, not going to take it quite to the uh, Rockets fans going for James Harden over Russell Westbrook levels. I will stop a half step <laughs> short of that, but put the Griffies at number three on my list as well. Make it three for three. That's exactly where I have the Griffies at the number three spot. And you guys laid out both their careers. I think Ken Sr. gets lost a little bit, a little bit like Bobby Bonds gets lost. Terrific player in his own right, but the son kind of outshines the father just by a smidge, but Sr. was awfully good as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, my number two, uh, this is the first father-son duo that came to mind. Greg, you had them at number six. I've got the Earnhardts, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Dale Earnhardt Sr. Obviously, uh, Sr. would have had a a more illustrious career than he he did if it weren't weren't for the tragic crash. And uh, and Jr., you know, made a a nice living for himself racing as well. But, again, Dale Earnhardt Sr., without question, on the Mount Rushmore of racing and would have even been uh, longer had had the the tragic crash not happened so um i've got the earnhardts here at number two and that's a, one of the first father-son duos i thought of when we decided we were doing this list i was calling a college basketball game the day that senior was killed and i remember kind of being told it and you're just like what no no way i mean he was just so dominant and he had come and run a race in the at the heartland park the, the racetrack in topeka which is where i was living and working at the time and i had a chance to interview senior and it man i just that was devastating when he got killed that day i, was, I still remember exactly i remember exactly where i was sitting when i got told that news horrible one of those guys that just seemed invincible given his personality yeah. and the way he drove but my number two has already been mentioned greg had the curry family back at number four so father dell had that long nba career seth has become a part-time starter but a top 15 shooter um in the nba in, in an era where shooting is more important than ever and all steph has done is invert the game of basketball and start discussions if you know if he's better than magic and better than you know guys like chris paul up there john stockton at the top of the all-time point guard at leaderboards pretty good pretty good work by del curry and family all right, my number two has been mentioned by you guys, and, and I'm, looking, I'm looking away a little bit because I've got the bonds here. Um, and my, my justification, I guess, in my own minds is before Barry Bonds started to juice, he was incredible. He'd won MVPs before he blew up and became looked like the Hulk a little bit. He was a 5-2 guy. He could hit for average. He hit for enough power. But I think he got jealous of McGuire and Sosa and those guys and was like, wait a minute, those guys, I'm better players than those guys, and they're getting all the love. I want the love they're getting. And so he opted to go to the dark side and juice himself up. But again, Bobby Bonds was so good as well. Uh, For a 10-year period, Barry Bonds was the best player in baseball, and I'm not sure it was close. And so for that reason, I've got him that high at number two. 
getting intentionally walked with the bases loaded in the playoffs is <laughs> right. is something that might not ever happen again. Yeah. All right, well, since it's not been said by any of us, I, I, <laughs> I would imagine it's not off your list. I've got the Manning family here at number one. Obviously, Archie uh, led the way, second overall draft pick, all everything in college, two-time pro bowler. Uh, found this statistic interesting when doing research on Archie Manning. He actually threw almost 50 more interceptions than he did touchdowns in the National Football League, 125 touchdowns to 173 INTs. Uh, but was a was a good rusher as well, and obviously had the sons Peyton and Eli, who uh, one is a for sure Hall of Famer, and one of them is one of those borderline guys that has uh, the ring. All he has to do is hold up the fingers, and <laughs> and that could be his argument. Uh, but yeah, both of them now riding off into the sunset. You would think Peyton and now Eli getting the the ties cut with Danny Dimes taking over in uh, in New York. But you you have two sons that are probably Hall of Famers, you're going to make a, a, a list somewhere, and it just happens to be ours tonight. I line up with you. Archie Payton and Eli are at number one. In terms of his stats, I don't know if Eli is quite Hall of Fame worthy, but he made Tom Brady very, very sad twice, and so for that reason, he is first ballot for me. He's a Colt. That's exactly why you put him there. Hey, I mean, Payton's Payton. I don't even need to say a word. I've Nebraska <laughs> yeah. beat him in the... In the Orange Bowl, so yeah, my true. parents yeah. are okay with it. He can he can be this high, and I can enjoy his NFL career. I don't know how you don't put them one. I mean, it's kind of the obvious choice, so uh, I'm with you. The Mannings go one for me as well. And, again, the, the dad was really good. Archie was a very good starting quarterback for the New Orleans Saints for all those years. So can we Twitter poll this? And I know the Mannings are probably going to win pretty easily, but what other options do we throw out? You, I had Bonds, too. You guys had who? Griffey, too? I had the Currys too. Currys. I too? had the Earnhardts too. Well, let's let's make it interesting. Let's. I mean, we got to throw the Mannings out there, but let's let's throw the Earnhardts out there as well as an option. And what's our third one? Currys or Curry's, Bonds, I'd say. Currys or 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 the Griffies. Griffies or the Bonds one of the two. Well, if we averaged our three pick, how how low did you have Bonds, Austin? I was at four with the Bonses. I had the Bonses at five, and I had them at two. I had the Griffies at four. No, I had the Griffies at three. I think we all had them at three. Then, yeah, we all had Griffies at three. Then, then let's go Griffies. Griffies. That average okay. is out a little higher. Got it. Let's give that out there. Let's get that pull up and see what people think. Austin gave you these scores of the ticker, but our Sports Highly Baseball Fantasy League is into the LCSs. Josh's team's in a commanding 3-0 advantage over the Twins. Ben, they, they got out to a 19 nothing start today in game three of their series. <laughs> Ended up winning easily to go up 3-0. My Harriers bounce back today. They lead the Dodgers now two games to one. Yeah, uh, they can hit. We've seen that before with, uh, you know, sometimes that happens. Those, those computer teams just don't have the depth in pitching. That's why we, we, we knew if, you know, they might steal a game early on because of their frontline guys. But game three, game four, game five, they just don't have anything left. And our, those offenses that are left are just way too good for below average pitchers to hold down. Our stream is up live on Twitch every day at 11 o'clock in the morning. Usually go about two hours. Today we went a little under because of the blowouts. But love to have you come on, jump in the chat room, have some fun with us. We talk all kinds of sports in that. Saw something today, Ben, that nobody had seen before. Ty Cobb's up. He hits a high chopper towards short. He turns it into a double. 
<laughs> what happened? Did it, was it misplayed? No. Shortstop got it, threw to first. Cobb never stopped and then beat the throw from first to second. Just kept running. Just kept running. Beat the throw. Wow. We were like, what? What was that? That's, it's unbelievable. That's falling asleep is what that is. It's a lot of speed for that, that old man Cobb, old Georgia Peach. <laughs> Doing that. All right, another hour in the books. Hope you enjoyed this one. Our Sports Highly Hotline brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto Family, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. You can still vote on our Runs of Twitter poll for the top father-son duos in sports. Your options, the Mannings, the Griffies, the Earnhardts, and it's the Mannings, but not by as big a margin as I thought it might be. Go out there and have some fun. Vote on that. Follow us at Husker Sports for our Twitter follow. Fun hour here on Sports Island.